Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 383. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of FinTech Nexus. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a new event we are hosting in London on October 17th and 18th. Called Merge, it is focused on the intersection of traditional finance and Web3. Regardless of the price of crypto tokens, the technology being developed by Web3 startups has the potential to completely transform the financial system. Our event will be bringing together leaders from Web3, fintech, and traditional finance to discuss how this transformation will take place. Find out more and register at fintechnexus.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Dmitry Dadiamov. He is the CEO and co-founder of Modern Treasury. And Modern Treasury is a super interesting company. As they say on their website, they build products that move money. So they're really all about helping companies process payments. Companies receive payments through ACH, via check, via wire, and Modern Treasury helps them manage that whole process. They've become you know, quite the, the force in the fintech space, really gathering uh, some big-name clients along the way. We talk about you know, what exactly they're trying to do, how it works. Dimitri takes us through a case study, which is really interesting. We talk about you know, real-time payments, uh, which is obviously in our near future. We talk about fraud prevention, their scale, and much more. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Dimitri. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So let's get started you know, by giving the listeners uh, a little bit of background about yourself. You spent quite a bit of time in fintech. Why don't you give us some of the highlights of your career to date before you started Modern Treasury? I uh, moved from Seattle to the Bay Area for college and got involved with a number of different startups. And through a journey through other sectors, I ended up at working for Foundation Capital for a bit, which was a big investor in marketplace lending and other fintech companies and at the time. And then that led me to join Lending Home, which is an online mortgage company that I was a product manager at, um, running the investor side, and met my co-founders at Mono Treasury there. They were, they were both at Lending Home with me. And the experiences that we had there led us into some of the insights, if you will, that led us into Modern Treasury. Okay. And so let's maybe talk about that and go into what, you know, know, Lending Home is called Kiavi now. I think we should make everybody aware of that. But what was it at Lending Home? And maybe just talk through the genesis of the founding story of uh, Modern Treasury. Going back to 2015, 2016, we were building a number of different new products inside of Lending Home, Nano Kiavi, as you mentioned. And I was in charge of a product that was basically the retail investing flow for individuals to come in and buy into various loans. And we jokingly kind of called it ugly Airbnb because it was sort of like Airbnb and you showed up and you create an account and you saw a lot of properties that had water damage or something needed a paint job or something. And that was kind of the value that you were investing in is improving that housing stock for the US. Mm -hmm. And underneath it all, one of the more challenging aspects technically was the money movement component. So we had an integration with a bank and we had to initiate payments based on activities that were happening on the website. 
whether that was a deposit or withdrawal on the investor side, a wire that was funding a loan, a ACH debit that was collecting the payment every month, and then we had to split it all up and send it to the right uh, accounts. And as the scale of that started growing to be 50, 60,000 transactions a month, the operational reconciliation, counting, customer success, all those types of problems started appearing as well. And really, the aha moment for Modern Treasury came from my experience at Lending Home, really just trying to solve these problems internally and, and thinking about companies that probably had this problem at scale already bigger than us at the time. And when I went to companies such as Uber and Airbnb and Angelist and Gusto and so on, instead of somebody saying, oh yeah, there's like this product you can use and it would just do this for you, everybody's answer was like, well, here, come meet our payments engineering team that is you know, 50 or 100 people. Oh, and geez. so it, a little bit of it was like, we joke it was rage founding. It was like, we just wanted a product that would just do this. And right. we didn't want anybody to, we didn't want ourselves to have to think about it, but we certainly didn't want anybody else to have to think about it. So we started kind of in our head to start formulating like what would this product actually look like and what would it do and what are the different avenues for growth for it. And in 2018, we uh, started a company, applied to Y Combinator and been kind of at it for the past four years. Yeah, you know, it's funny because you'd think it would have been this is a product that would have already existed given that payments is a pretty mature part of fintech, but obviously it hadn't. And I'm curious about, you know, you talk about the 60,000 payments a month though. This is the lifeblood of a company. You can't screw this up, right? Because if you go in and, and screw this up, then the whole company can shut down. So, you know, you started the company, so you got into Y Combinator. How did you get your first sale? How did you get someone to trust you that you could actually do this as a total startup? Because it's not something you can just kind of do a little bit. You've got to go all in, right? Let me go back a little bit to a comment that you made about that payments is a mature problem and, and this critical problem that exists in every company. I think that is true. But that said, I think the internet, for the majority of the internet's kind of life, the web economy really was uh, messing with industries that are primarily run on credit cards. So right. there's been a lot of infrastructure built for credit cards. If you think about back, go back to 2005 or something, there was probably the primary overarching commercial problem with the internet was if you're Netflix, if you're Amazon, if you're Expedia, how do I accept a credit card number over a form over the web? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of companies, whether it's Braintree or Stripe or Adyen or, or others that have been built up around solving this problem for what we know as e-commerce today. But when Lending Home started in 2013, sending a wire over the internet was actually not a solved problem because not right. a lot of people have had to deal with that. And so that interconnection between of course, there's been a lot of sectors of the economy that have been operating on ACH and wire and paper check for decades. But that kind of potent mixture of web innovation and ACH wire check actually hadn't been a primary motivating kind of problem in the 2000s. But in the 2010s, all of a sudden, you had companies that started messing with healthcare, messing with real estate, messing with financial services, lending, uh, investments, things like that. And so to your question, it is it is very difficult to convince somebody that a problem as critical as this should be trusted to a startup. And when we went to Y Combinator, we did not have the graph that every YC company is trying to get. So when you think about the prototypical YC company that come in every week, they grow 10%, they have a graph by the end of the 12 weeks that they can show investors and say, look at this, this is up and to the right. 
And we were very consistently at zero the entire time. Right. And part of it was that we were building like this pretty deep infrastructure thing. But part of it was what you're describing, which is it's actually really hard to convince somebody to trust you. We would meet companies and everybody would smile and nod and, and kind of accept that the way that they're doing it internally isn't necessarily the best way to do it, isn't necessarily the most elegant. There's still a gulf there of who's going to trust you. Right. And uh, our first customer was a startup. It was a friend of mine who I knew from before, Will Young at Sana Benefits, which is a you're starting sort of a health healthcare kind of health insurance benefits company and needed this. And I think when you're starting a B2B company, I think a lot of times founders and first investors and first employees get a lot of credit for what they've built. But it's really the first customer that puts you in business and should get right. all the credits. It's right. sort of a castle in the air until you have that first customer who's actually putting, in, in our case, the flow of funds through the product. And so we owe a big uh, debt of gratitude to Will. Sana is still a customer today. There are three, 400 people now. So it's been super fun to watch them grow. But it takes a certain set of conditions, whether it's like trust from before, trust because they knew that we had dealt with this problem before, we'd seen it on some scale. They you know, didn't necessarily want to allocate the engineering resources to go build this. They had better things to build, which I would posit most of our customers have better things to build than this. But that was our first customer, Sana Benefits. Interesting. Interesting. I thought you were going to say Lending Home was your first customer, but uh, that's great. So anyway... I'd like to sort of get a sense of maybe you could describe the product and maybe the product suite that you have today and how it's evolved from when you first started. Beginning of the of our journey really was around this payment initiation and payment approval and payment reconciliation flow. Mm-hmm. So a company that has to integrate with a bank, we do not step in the flow of funds. We're relying on every customer to go get underwritten and, and open an account at a bank of their choice. And so what we've done is we've built a software product that connects into their, into their bank and then allows them, exposes an API to them to go build the logic of their business on top of it. Mm-hmm. So just to get, make it a very concrete thing, if you have an investment app and you have a deposit button, behind the deposit button, when somebody says deposit, there might be an API call to Modern Treasury that then transforms that request. Like we're going to pull $1,000 out of this account sends that to the bank, reconciles it when the payment shows up with a monthly statement or the daily statement for the corporate account, all of a sudden has that new credit that appeared that the money actually arrived. We will reconcile it, match it, send a webhook or status notification back and update the app so that the app can then you know say like the money has arrived, go invest it in something. And then from there, that payment product that we have, there's other uh, developer concerns that people have when they have to build one of these products. One of the common ones is what our ledgers product addresses, which is, oh, like now we're moving a lot of money. How do we keep track of all this? And how do we make sure that we have the right like sub wallet accounting structure and mm-hmm. or lender or marketplace or there's different versions of this. But ledgers is really a financial accounting database and it allows people to go not have to build that from scratch and rely on us for being able to kind of register and look at balances and things like that. And then the most recent product that we launched is compliance. So another common concern is the bank that a company might open an account at might say, oh, I would love for you to also do all these KYC processes that ensure for me as a bank that we're not transacting with bad actors. And so that kicks off a whole other kind of product problem for the company to go build 
like the KYC flow and to be able to handle, re resolve kind of fraud cases and have a case management system to be able to display like what are the issues that pop up. And so we've built that as a product as well. So today our suite is really payments, ledgers, and compliance. There's new things that we're working on. A lot of our product roadmap comes from problems our customers are seeing that right. we look at and say, that's pretty general. I don't know that you should be building this from scratch every time. And then we turn into a product. What are the primary verticals you've got? You mentioned that it was like a healthcare or benefits company. Is it primarily fintech or who are you selling to? It's by and large, any company that transacts over ACH wire check. That's a lot of companies. <laughs> it's a lot of companies, a lot of, it's a lot of segments. So it's always a little bit hard for us to answer this question because fundamentally what we're building is truly um, sort of infrastructure for running a company well. But you can think about healthcare as a big segment. You can think about real estate as a big segment. Financial services, there's a lot of sub-segments within it. You know, lending, investing, invoice factoring, all of that happens over ACH or wire check. There's other new kind of emerging markets like trucking and logistics and uh, neo-banking type things and uh, construction and travel and, and others. So it's, it's pretty broad. I mean, at the end of the day, the problems that companies come to us with is their product needs to talk to a bank. And that's where we come in. And so it's right. a pretty broad set of industries. Right. Maybe you could just take us through an example here, because there's one on your website, which I was reading, which I thought was really interesting. And, you know, Pipe is a pretty well-known fintech company these days, fast growing. They do revenue-based financing for SaaS companies. I'd love to kind of get a sense of just, these are companies that are getting in lots of payments every month. What did you do for them exactly? So one of my favorite things about Modern Treasuries, we get to dive in and help companies get build these new businesses. And we always get to learn about like new business case studies. Like the business school nerd in me just loves that. So in the case of Pipe, they addressed the problem that was a very real problem. So when you think about a switch from in the software world, a company started going into kind of software subscriptions as their way of monetizing. A lot of the costs for building software happens up front. So collecting over a monthly, you know, month by month for the next 12 or 24 months creates a cash flow problem because you incur all the costs or a lot of the costs up front. And so what Pipe and there's a number of other companies that have built similar products really come in and say, hey, as a software company, wouldn't you want to collect the full 12 months revenue that somebody has just signed a contract for and get that on day one? And Pipe has created a marketplace for this revenue-based financing problem where they allow investors to come in and basically underwrite and estimate, in their view, what the future collections are going to be. You may not get... If you sign a contract for $1,000 a month, you may not get $12,000 on, on day one. You may get $11,000. And for a lot of companies, that's a good trade. So Pipe has created a marketplace. On one side, they are handling almost like capital calls and kind of mm -hmm. investor flows of funds and distributions. And on the other side, they are distributing funds to companies. So a company comes to Pipe and Pipe builds its own workflow and its own UI for how a company might apply for this and, and share a contract and make a decision. And then they use Modern Treasury's APIs to basically initiate the money movement. So they're saying, oh, okay, like this company got approved for $10,000. We're going to send $10,000 to them. That's where they create an API call for an ACH credit or wire. They're going to put the metadata of like what it is. It's like company one, two, three, and this is what who's been approved by and whatever other metadata they want to be able to capture. We send that to their bank. 
we reconcile and send him a status update saying it, it succeeded or it failed or what have you. There's a dashboard for their customer success team to be able to look up details. So if the company calls and says, hey, the payment is 50 bucks short or the payment didn't arrive or something like that, the service team at Pipe can actually look it up and ascertain what's going on and actually be able to respond to that. And then we also push that information into whatever accounting system they want to use. So once we've reconciled the initiation payment point, which is like, oh, we want to distribute these funds, there's some journal entry that you really want to be associated with that later on for your accounting and for your month close and so on. So at the moment at which we've reconciled the monthly statement to the bank to that initial API call, we can actually tag that and push that into QuickBooks or NetSuite or something like that. Interesting. So then just want to talk about banks for a second. I mean, I'd love to know what, how banks sort of view all of this because there's a lot of banks partnering with fintechs these days in various different ways. What are your relationships like with banks? Are banks really a big supporter of what you guys are doing? I could see it would make their lives easier as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly like to think that they're big supporters. You know, when we started, one of the focus areas for us really was, you know, the business model perspective. Software is this business model where you invest a lot to build the best software out there, and then you try to divide it by the largest denominator, basically by as many co- users as you can. So if you think about Excel, and I grew up in Redmond, Washington, both my parents are Microsoft, so I grew up with a gospel of software on the dinner table. But mm-hmm. if you think about a product like Excel, it's really powerful that you can use it for a to-do list and you can use it for a really complicated macro. They're not building a product that's only for a certain segment. Like they're not like Excel for like just mid-market companies or just healthcare or something right. like that. And so I think that's actually pretty opposite to the business model of a bank, because banks are fundamentally risk management and marketing organizations. They understand a certain segment, they know how to attract that segment, and they underwrite risk to that segment. And so almost definitionally, they can't divide <laughs> their software investment by the largest number of customers. And so I think that there's a very synergistic amount of work that's now happening between us and the banks where we're able to invest in things and then build really products that work for crypto companies and for healthcare and for and Fortune 500 and for small startups. And those types of companies all might work with different banks. And that's okay. That's actually how banks, they all have their focus kind of areas. And so when we work closely with banks, we align with them on like what types of customers they're going after. We try to make sure that we help them serve their customers better. We charge the companies. We don't charge the banks. And so from that perspective, it's really a customer's choice to work with us. But making it a very smooth and easy experience for things like embedded finance to work on your bank should be, I think, a priority for every bank. It really comes down to, do you have event logging for your developer webhooks. And it's like, that's that's just so far away from what a bank portal is or should be or what they should care about. Like you're really getting into these like much more developer infrastructure concerns. So when we work with banks, I mean, really there's a couple of areas. One is how do we make sure that we are serving the right set of clients jointly? How are we making sure that we are doing things like referrals back and forth when we see companies that we will serve well together? How do we make sure that from an implementation perspective, these companies can go live quickly and can see kind of time to value? Like if you as a financial institution can say, hey, we can get you up and running in a matter of days or weeks or not weeks or months, that is a huge value prop for anybody building a new product. Those are some of the conversations that we're having with banks. Right. I want to talk about Silicon Valley Bank because they're an investor in your company now. So clearly they believe in what you guys are doing and you also have like a 
a partnership with them. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, so Silicon Valley Bank was our very first bank partner. So we started when we were in YC, we started working with them back in 2018. Not surprisingly, they're kind of the premier bank for for startups that going back to the how hard is this thing to sell? We had a hunch that our first customers are going to be startups. It's going to be harder for us to sell mm-hmm. much larger companies. So SVB was the first bank that we went live with, Sana, back in 2018. From there, the relationship kind of grew and got deeper in different directions. So from a product perspective, there are certain product integrations that we're working on. Basically, how do you go live quickly? How do you get your account set up with different you know, reporting or payment rails or things like that? From a go-to-market perspective, we've done joint events, we've done webinars, we've referred clients uh, back and forth, we have some joint landing pages. That's all targeted at specific types of companies. And our latest round, SCB Capital, became a shareholder as well. So we're very close to them. Right, right. You know, you talked about ACH and wire and checks. I want to touch on real-time payments because, you know, it's starting to come and you've got FedNow that's on the horizon and there's other RTP type uh, offerings. So I imagine you're agnostic, right, to the type of payment, but I'd love to know kind of what you're doing there. Yeah, we support real-time payments. We've start, added support to our for RTP, I believe in 2019. So fairly early. I mean, the the first RTP payment ever was uh, happened in 2017. So it was kind of a, a slow rollout to start with. You know, if you take a step back, the US banking system and the US payment system is really large and really fragmented and, and pretty antiquated uh, relative mm-hmm. to some other countries. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn from the experience that other countries have had. And if you look at payment rails like UPI in India or PIX in Brazil, these are not subtle things. Like when they start working, they take over, you know, 20, 30, 40% of all payment volume right. pretty quickly. And it makes sense they would. I mean, they're like, why would you pick the thing that takes three days over the like instant thing if they are identically easy to use? Now, they're not in the US today, they're not identically easy to use. RTP is primarily like credit only, it's not really debit rail yet. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have full coverage across all banks. So we've got some work to do as kind of the banking community before that's really something that a customer, whether corporate or consumer, can um, really rely on every transaction to be able to go in real time. But from our perspective, the way we see it is we want to support the most innovative companies. Those companies are going to try to experiment and eventually use uh, at scale these new payment rails. And so we just want to be ahead of the wave and with the wave and empowering the companies that are that are doing this. And there's a lot of really interesting use cases. The big picture of it is that it's not quite yet ready to be fully kind of transformative to every use case over ACH or something like that. But as soon as it gets there, I do think that'll be like a pretty rapid switch over. I've been studying PIX in Brazil pretty closely and it's just been amazing. It only launched, I think, what, 18 months ago or something. It's already a huge chunk of, of payments going through. So so whatever it is, obviously, like you will work with it. I imagine, I mean, how is it different working with real-time payments versus ACH, which we know can be reversed and uh, has a lag time? How do you have to set things up differently? There's a lot of organizational changes that happen. So one of the things that we've seen that was kind of interesting, I remember back at Lending Home, we had an operational process for things like ACH debits that would bounce. And, and because ACH is an overnight kind of batch system, you can show up in the morning and see what happened overnight mm-hmm. and handle the newly created cases that need to be handled. That doesn't work in 24-7 real-time environments. I mean, if nothing else, you have to build software 
to catch exceptions or to catch things that fall outside of some risk criteria or some rule that, that creates it and put them into a queue and kind of not release them until you know that somebody has looked at it. But if that happens, you know, middle of the night on Friday night, you're not going to have somebody who is on staff ready to look at it within seconds or minutes. So you either have to have software to create workflows and create queues out of that, or you have to have software actually make the decision and build like the algorithm that makes the decision of what to do about these types of exceptions. So I think what the most interesting thing about real-time payments, obviously the, the actual messaging to the bank is different, but that's pretty simple. The deeper change that happens is all of a sudden you have a very different set of operational problems for these organizations to handle. Mm-hmm. And I think what would be interesting to see as well is there are certain use cases like remittances or payroll or things that fundamentally are being done. Like we get paid it once every two weeks. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but a lot of it is just sort of the associated headache, if you will, with calculating the amounts and figuring out like how much goes to taxes and then handling the ACH and putting the money into like a, a payroll kind of company's controlled bank and then distributing that. You can do all of that much more instantly if you really want to with software and you can pay people every day. And there are certain gig economy type use cases where they've now gone to actually being able to distribute at the end of your shift, distributing the payments every day. That's kind of interesting. I mean, there's a lot of companies whose business model is all around this delay in getting paid. Right. And <laughs> that delay doesn't have to happen. Like it's fundamentally like I think we'll be better off as a society if that delay just didn't happen. So it's an artifact of software, an artifact of how the payment system works. And so when right. you go to real time payments, I do think that you can start doing that. And it's not just not just the payment itself. It's also the calculations and the like organizational setup for how to distribute those funds. Right. Right. And then what about fraud? I mean, do you sort of have fraud systems internally? That you sort of help your clients kind of catch it? Or is that is that outside of what your purview is? A little bit of both. On the one hand, we are a software product and you can run your business however you want using it. So we don't impose modern treasury-driven fraud controls on different businesses. But our compliance product does have the ability to to do transaction monitoring and to do those types of ACH fraud cases. And we also have a case management system, which is just from a workflow perspective, captures all the cases that are somehow suspect and somebody can go look at them from a risk perspective. And going maybe back a little bit to the bank side, I think one of the really interesting things that we can hopefully get to at some point is when you think about a company actually going live with a bank, a lot of the underwriting and compliance conversation that happens is really about a company's KYC policies and how they're going to be able to live by those types of fraud and and other concerns. And what we can do is actually enforce a pre-approved compliance regime onto a company, Mm -hmm. obviously the company's decision to to choose to do that. But we can work very closely with banks and say, look, if you're using modern treasury and if you've picked this compliance uh, set of compliance kind of settings, it's like pre-approved by pick your bank. And if that bank is okay with that, then all of a sudden we can kind of collapse a lot of the initial implementations for banks that are really make it a lot harder, I think, to get started with fintech companies today. So I think the really powerful thing is not just solving this kind of fraud problem inside of the company for the company's benefits, but actually transmitting that information and helping keep the, the banks informed of what is actually happening on the rails. Right, right. Makes sense. So can you give us a sense of the scale you guys are at today? I mean, how big is the team and how, what number of transactions you're processing? I mean, what can you share? We started in 2018. 
we are 180 people today. Primarily, it's product and engineering, very heavy in that because we're investing in a lot of new bank integrations, a lot of new products. And you know, our kind of North Star that we think about is really what's our volume of transactions that clients are using Modern Treasury to reconcile volume with. And we're doing about $5 billion a month now in transactions. Now, depending on the use case, that can be like large wires, or that can be $1 kind of ACH transactions, it can be kind of spins the gamut. But it's over a million transactions a month now wow. that are being managed by Modern Treasury. Okay, great. So you've got sort of a, a hook into a lot of, like they said, there's a huge number of companies that process payments, but sounds like you're adding different functionality. What's your vision for Modern Treasury? We want to be the best software for anybody who's building a business that connects like the web and the banking system. And that sounds very broad, but really anybody who's building a web application or a mobile application and they're somehow handling funds, we want to build the best software for them. We want to build the best software for the developers inside those companies so that we can have the best documentation and APIs and the things that that part of the world cares about. But inside those organizations, one of the things that we are very conscious of is that good fences make good neighbors. Like We mm-hmm. need to make sure the finance team actually is able to oversee and feel comfortable about which banks they want to work with, what the bank of choice for them is, what the kind of risk and compliance and, and fraud characteristics of you know what the developers have built are going to be. And then how do you actually manage that from a month close and from a kind of ongoing reporting perspective? So we build a lot of tools for the finance team as well as for the developer team. And those really creating some a product that just works for both those and allows freeze the company to kind of focus on their core business. Like We think this is very critical for them, but we don't think it's very core to sure. the specific innovation they're trying to put in the world. Okay. Well, well good luck, uh, Dimitri. It was, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Fascinating story. Thank you. You know, I want to go back to something Dimitri said there, that he was saying that really processing payments is not really a core piece of business for pretty much any company outside of uh, companies like Modern Treasury. So this is really gets to the heart of the embedded finance function. And that is you're embedding financial functions that are not core to your business. Every business has financial functions. Every business processes payments. Some obviously process a lot more and that's where Modern Treasury comes in. But the whole point of embedding financial services into your business is to sort of remove resources from these repeatable type operations and focus them on your core business. And I think that's the promise of embedded finance, which really I think Dimitri kind of discussed uh, right there and gave a really good case for. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.